I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with author and philosopher Kate Mann. Kate Mann has been a guest on The Electorate a few times, and the first time was a couple of years ago when she joined me to discuss her acclaimed book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. And now Kate Mann joins me again to talk about her latest book entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women. In the book and in our conversation, there's a broad collection of examples that we go through of male entitlement, including Brett Kavanaugh and his performance during those infamous Supreme Court confirmation hearings. So without further ado, here is my conversation with author and philosopher Kate Mann. Well, Kate Mann, welcome, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So you open your new book by revisiting the the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings and Christine Blasey Ford's testimony, and you very aptly describe him and his behavior as the epitome of entitlement, right? He was shouting his answers. Yes. He was very, very clearly seemed to be above it all. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so, you know, not only was his entitlement on display, but you described that there's this perfect mixture of misogyny and empathy that were working in tandem. And when these things work in tandem so perfectly in the way that they did with this testimony, you can see how it kind of robs the victim or the person who's on the other end. And that was, you know, Christine Blasey Ford in this case. It kind of robs them of their humanity and that they can't react in the same way. You know, Kavanaugh was really angry. He was able to you know, shout his answers and she was expected to be as non-emotional as possible. Right. Yeah. And she also was denied the, you know, any feelings about whether she, she could or should be there or not. Right. And I think Lindsey Graham described him having to be there as hell. But no one really talked about whether she should actually be there or not. Yes, absolutely. No, it's a great question. Yeah, I love those those observations. Um, so I think there was this this fascinating and really heartbreaking contrast between his demeanor and her demeanor during the hearings. So she had to be deferential and solicitous, and she had these kind of poignant attempts to be. Um, quote unquote, helpful, as helpful as possible um, to the senators who were questioning her. Um, and in contrast, he was, um, just as you point out, he was a picture of entitlement, um, despite Blasey Ford's credible, to me, you know, highly credible sexual assault accusations against him. He embodied the sense of entitlement to one of the positions of highest moral authority in the land. Um, and to not be questioned despite the allegations against him in order to, in order to take up that position. Um, and to me, it was an extraordinary contrast between her calm, helpful, and intensely humble demeanor and his arrogance and entitlement. Um, and you also had, as just as you point out, this interplay of the misogyny directed against Blasey Ford, uh, his victim, and this sense of, of what I call empathy, this disproportionate or undue sympathy often extended to men who commit acts of sexual violence or other misogyny um, over their female victims. You had people like Donald Trump and Lindsey Graham um, bemoaning the fact that he was being put through hell, according to Graham, when in fact she was the one who had been through hell and was going through hell again in being effectively re-traumatized by coming forward and bravely, courageously uh, volunteering to be questioned. So yeah, it was an interplay of, to me, all of those factors. Um, But I couldn't resist 
that image of his his red, intensely petulant face um, sputtering and drinking and talking about beer during the hearings. To me, that was just the epitome of what I wanted to highlight in this book. Right. And I was wondering whether, well, it felt like, you know, watching her there and watching her demeanor, that she had to shrink herself, right, to allow yes. for his entitlement to bloom, right? And I, I always wondered what she's like, you know, outside of that context, right? You know, how much anger would she actually have if she weren't expected to kind of shrink down her humanity to make room for him? Absolutely. Yeah, I love that observation. Um, even her voice was quiet. I mean, I would love to just compare the both pitch and decibels, the volume of their respective voices, um, and of course, that's also intensely metaphorical. Women's voices have to get quieter in order to accommodate privileged men's loudness under those circumstances. You know, and you you reprint Lindsey Graham's address and, you know, I read it. I mean, I didn't read I read it in the book, but I also listened to it live when the hearings happened. And I remember just being really angry. You know, there was something about his anger that really angered me when I when I heard it live. But when I read it, I think I had a better understanding of why it made me so angry. Right. You know, he said things like, you know, I can't imagine what you and your family have gone through. You know, boy, you all want power talking to the Democrats, you know, and God, I hope you never get it. I mean, when I was reading it, it was obvious to me that it felt in some ways performative Mm-hmm. And that he couldn't possibly believe that her pain in having to go through this testimony was equivalent to his pain of possibly being denied basically a golden ticket for life. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like maybe in some ways he was trying to balance the emotionality by saying like this harm is just as egregious as what you're accusing us of. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting possibility. Um I tend to think I tend to think women's pain is just so unreal to men like Graham. I I think of it as almost a form of gendered sociopathy where the pain that she must have experienced just is completely obscure to the point of being invisible to men in that position which makes their priority which is male pain so salient and so striking and seems so important. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. You know, but another thing that he said in his in his address was that, you know, Miss Ford had a problem. And you've heard that, I think, a lot on Fox News that, you know, implying that mm-hmm. she had, you know, mental problems or, you know, destroying Kavanaugh's life won't fix her problem. And that's another thing I think we see with um, sexual assault cases, that they often feign concern for a woman's mental health to kind of distract from the fact that they are actually listening to the women. Absolutely. Um And I think that's also reflected in a lot of the people who pretended to, or at least um, ostensibly believed her, maybe they were pretending to, um, but some of them actually did believe her and then just didn't care enough about what she had claimed happened. Um, And for the record, I, I believe her completely. But, you know, people like Susan Collins saying, I believe her and then voting for him anyway Um, which, you know, she later kind of somewhat uh, backtracked and said, well, I believe her that the assault happened, but I don't believe her that she was correct about who her assailant was. Um, But you also had people saying they straight up believed her, straight up believed Brett Kavanaugh was her assailant and said, um, it's just not important enough to deprive a man of what he's deemed entitled to. 
And that to me was another kind of shocking facet of the case. Right. I feel like we were kind of all collectively, because you talk about misogyny being like a shock collar to punish women, you know, who ignore gender norms. And I think that that was kind of extended to an extent to anyone who would defend Christine Blasey Ford during these hearings, yeah, right? Yeah, I think there was, you know, just, I mean, I, I do think there was in some ways heartening momentum um, in the direction of justice for a victim of sexual assault here. Um, But the fact that it wasn't enough and the fact that there was undoubtedly a great deal of backlash against those who stood up with her and for her, um, that's demoralizing. Um, I, the whole episode was, was such a demoralizing one because another thing I think worth highlighting here is that she, as a white woman, as in many ways, a kind of, you know, quote unquote, perfect victim as someone who was privileged in many ways, who um, highly educated, middle class, you know, relatively wealthy. She had all the trappings of someone who um, would be maximally credible in our highly unjust and racist, uh, you know, system of credibility, credibility surpluses and deficits. And still, it wasn't enough. If not her, then whom would be believed under circumstances where it would cost a man something that he's uh, deemed entitled to and that he's privileged enough to have learned to expect. That was kind of my question at the end of it. Yeah. We talked about this in relation to testimonial injustice and before, because we had a conversation before the hearing ended about whether she would be, you know, she would be afforded justice, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, she was not. And I think it has something to do with the person on the other end and the thing that's at risk. Absolutely. Right. This is one of the highest positions in, in the land. So, you know, I think that that, you know, under certain circumstances, if he weren't up for a Supreme Court seat, if it were something, you know, less, I mean, there would have been a possibility that more people would have listened to her. Absolutely. I, I think often, too, we make the mistake of thinking that it's the barrier is just disbelief. Um, and here, I think this points to the fact that even if the victim is highly, highly credible and many people, in fact, even on his side did believe her, what people find for these high stakes, super entitled male cases are reasons and post hoc rationalizations for a foregone conclusion, which is not costing a man what he's, what is deemed his due. And that can be, the post hoc rationalization can be affecting to disbelieve her, to hold that she's a liar, but it can also be believing her in some sense, but holding that she was mistaken about who the assailant was, Um, or it can be believing her and then shrugging and not taking action against him. And so I think it's, it's an important case to bring out the potential myth that um, believing um, in ways that counter testimonial injustice, that that will be sufficient to do justice to victims under circumstances like this. Um, I think that as well as disbelieving, we'll find other ways of dismissing and trivializing what people in her position say. Um, so I want to talk about the flavor of entitlement associated with Elliot Roger. You know, he's another person yeah. that when I hear his name... Elliot Rogers, when I hear his name, my skin just kind of crawls, mm, you know, just same. because he was just steeped in misogyny. I mean, not steeped in misogyny, he was steeped in misogyny, but also entitlement, right? 
But I like how deep you go into the book in this chapter because it wasn't as simple as feeling entitled to women or even just having sex with women. It's, mm-hmm. it's deeper and more complex with that. So can you talk about his flavor of entitlement? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I love that question because I think he being this sort of patron saint, for lack of a better term, of incels or, or so-called involuntary celibates, he, he's really important to understand not so much what's going on in his mind, but the kind of the general pathology that he embodied and instantiated. And to me, I think one of the mistakes we make in thinking about men like him, as well as incels, we think of them as primarily feeling entitled to sex with women. So we think of, just to kind of elaborate for readers who might not, I'm sorry, listeners, I'm so used to readers, listeners who, who might not have heard the term incel before, these are men, typically young men, typically though um, by no means invariably privileged also along racial dimensions, who they feel entitled to sex with women. So these, I should say, most importantly are heterosexual men, uh, cis men. And, you know, they talk about sex with women a lot, um, but Roger also talked about feeling um, rejected by women and feeling that he was owed things like affection and love and admiration as well as sex. And I think if you kind of dig into the rhetoric of uh, people like him, what you actually find is that they feel entitled to sex as an instrumental good that's meant to be currency to kind of buy them a feeling primarily of being admired by women, being looked up to, being revered, and being granted status within a social hierarchy, um, where they're competing with other men, in fact, for uh, women who are perceived as kind of instrumental goods and spoils in this intramasculine competition. Um, So yeah, I think talking about it in terms of entitlement to sex kind of misses the deeper underlying pathology, which is feeling an entitlement to admiration more than anything. Right. Because, you know, another, um, I think, misconception that you point out in the book is that, you know, people assume that incels are unattractive and that isn't necessarily the case. And when you think about Elliot Rogers and, you know, what was happening in his life, he could have sex, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) He could. And for one thing, he had money and, you know, he could have availed himself, as with many incels, of the services of a sex worker had he so chosen. And... So it it isn't ultimately about sex qua some physical act. And it's also not that these men are, I think we make a huge mistake to buy into their their own kind of sub story about their lives, that they're not attractive enough, or he complained of being not quite white enough. So he was Chinese on his uh, mother's side of the family. So, you know, he felt as a half Asian man that he wasn't white enough to have sex with the kinds of women he desired who were invariably blonde and yeah it's first not you know just about sex as I just pointed out but it's also not about actually being lower in some attractiveness hierarchy Um, there was a fascinating article in the cut that ran that showed um, a lot of photographs of these men both before and after they'd had cosmetic surgery to make their jaw lines more masculine and that kind of thing And a lot of these men were perfectly average looking, even handsome. And it just, and, you know, it's also an obvious point, but, you know, there is, 
I mean, there is no, there's no actual barrier to people who look lots of different ways having sex, um, you know, and having relationships and, and even, you know, finding, you know, intimacy and love and, you know, all the rest of it. Um, I feel like these men should rather be interpreted as highly aggrieved and looking for some kind of hierarchy that would justify their invalid sense of being somehow lower down a hierarchy um, rather than has, having actually been kind of discarded by women. Um, so this is a way of, of just not buying their own story about what's problematic in their lives. Um, yeah, that I think we do a real mistake to, to buy into their narratives. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. You know, one of the patterns that I noticed about incels and the way that they talk about the people around them, for instance, is that they need, I think, some adjacent character to fuel their feelings about the social order or about their mm-hmm. inadequacies. And they talk about chads, which I think chads are just kind of, I guess, typically masculine men or like blonde men or something. And they also have another, you know, nemesis, I guess, is, you know, often black people. They're often very racist. Absolutely. And, you know, they need this adjacent character to kind of fuel the, the, the their rational thinking about themselves and about their, their placement in the world. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it's crucial to to reflect on the intense racism of incels, including incels who are not white themselves, like Roger. Um, so he was full of, of anti-black vitriol against black men who managed to sleep with the kind of blonde women who, within his incredibly rigid and hierarchical worldview, he felt he was entitled to these blonde women over black men who he was competing with. And he also felt intensely jealous of, as jealous of, as you say, the chads, who were men he felt were more masculine and whiter than he was. Um, so you have these incredibly rigid social hierarchies, which are both these, they shape these wor- men's worldviews. And they also find other hierarchies like a supposed hierarchy of attractiveness to slot their grievances into and to make sense of their highly distorted worldview, where supposedly they're constantly the victims and being done an injustice, even when all that's actually going on is that they're, um, you know, either having difficulties dating because dating can be difficult or because of um, obvious disadvantageous features of their personalities. Right. Another thing you point out is that they see celibacy as something that's done to them. It's a harm, like, you know, an act of harm that's being done to them versus, you know, seeing an absence of attraction as just being the other person exercising their agency. Yes, exactly. I mean, and it's interesting, too, that they don't feel disappointed by their lack of a relationship or lack of sex. They feel aggrieved by it. They feel not just that this is a bummer or this is something they hope changes um, or even you know, some degree of self-blame or feeling like a loser, they feel like the world and women in particular have done them a profound injustice. So yeah, it's a really, it's a really, to me, vivid pathology that exemplifies a general sense of entitlement on the part of men that is, is much more widespread to have women validate men. So can we talk a bit about um, consent, right, and the entitlement around consent in in relation to, you know, men feel entitled to sex, (laughs) right? And, you know, one of the things that 
I think when I was reading that chapter about consent that that came to mind was that when a woman has been sexually assaulted and she goes for help, right, you know, to the authorities, you know, we often parse through her experience or not we, but, you know, the people that she goes to for help parse through her experience through the lens of sex and not rape because rape is about power. Right. And so, you know, we, we question them in the context of, you know, were you denying this man the thing that he's entitled to, which is sex, which resulted in rape? Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that's unfortunately another kind of piece of the puzzle as to why we don't take rape seriously as a crime, um, because we see it sometimes and, you know, in fact, tragically as a man, you know, especially this is the case, I think, you know, primarily with privileged men um, and men who are powerful along various dimensions. We see it as men seizing something to which they're entitled, namely sex, rather than raping a woman and inflicting uh, just abominable form of violence against her. Um, and yeah, I think there's a related point too, though, which is as feminists, it's not just rape that we have to worry about. I think even when consent is given, and so what we don't, uh, we don't have a case of sexual assault, sex can still fail to be ethical. So I think of consent as necessary but not sufficient for ethical sex, because unfortunately, in a patriarchy where these, where there are these incredibly coercive social scripts, what we sometimes get is um, situations where a woman feels pressure from that social script to give consent, and in fact does give it, but out of the sense that she's obligated to give a man sex rather than actually authentically desiring the act. Um, and to me, that's the kind of problem that's highlighted by the short story Cat Person that went viral late in 2017 and a host of real life cases like the Aziz Ansari case, arguably, where there, there is consent, but it's not enough to make the sex ethically decent. Right, right, right. Those are really good examples. And I, I was really I was stuck there on those two examples in the book because I'm, I'm figuring, like, how do we solve this, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we because consent is more complex than just yes or no. Like she said yes or she said no. There's power dynamics. There is, you know, there are communication issues. There are, you know, a woman feeling whether she has the power or the permission to say no, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, you know, and I don't know, it's not necessarily an absence of consent, but, you know, how do we broaden our ideas about consent to make these circumstances safer for women? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It. It's a really hard problem to solve because I think what this shows is that we'll have to enlarge our conversation even beyond consent, even when that's given an expensive definition. Um, we have to kind of dig into issues around sex, sex education. Like this is where I think ideally we would have these conversations. We would start them very young and we would be asking things like um, or talking about things like when you're with a partner, have you made sure that they really want to be there? Like, have you established more than what we might think of as superficial consent? Like, have you really made them feel secure in the idea that they have an out, a socially acceptable out at any time for any reason, if they want to stop or slow things down or do something different, then that that's completely acceptable. 
and that will be something that doesn't attract guilt or shame. I think if we started to have these conversations much earlier in life and really made girls as well as non-binary kids aware that they're always entitled to opt out and, you know, boys should, of course, learn that too and gave the message to, I think, primarily boys that one's never entitled to have someone's willing participation and that you should really be interested in whether they genuinely want to be there doing what they're doing. I think that would be a really good start to trying to reform the conversation around sex from is it a crime to is it ethically good? Is it an act that nourishes all of the participants and is something that really respects everyone involved rather than simply not rising to the threshold of being a criminal act, which is a very low bar, ethically speaking? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the problem with these conversations and why a lot of people don't want to have them because Mm -hmm. there isn't... There isn't a clear definition as to what is criminal and what isn't. I mean, there is a clear definition, but I think that that a lot of people and a lot of men especially feel that if they admit to not having, you know, clear consent, that they're aligning themselves with something that's clearly criminal, like an actual sexual assault. Yeah, yeah. It's just interesting because in most areas of human life, it's not like we think the conversation about, well, how do how does one be honest in the full sense of the term? We don't think that's exhausted by the question of, well, how do you not commit fraud, legally speaking, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's also, you know, we don't regard um, as taboo the possibility that we haven't been fully honest with other people or ourselves. And similarly, I think these conversations should make room for the fact that for many people, there'll be room for improvement when it comes to communication around sex and really, yeah, genuinely caring about whether your partner has given more than superficial consent and and not just regarding it as a kind of pro forma thing to be gotten out of the way. Um, yeah, and uh, I think you're absolutely right that there is this sense that this is awkward territory because it's getting into the question of whether or not you're committing crimes but I think we need to get away from that paradigm completely and say that's like the a very low ethical bar that, of course, needs to be satisfied. But then once consent is established in that sense, there's so much more that needs to happen to support this being something that, that should be taking place and that is good for all participants. Yeah. I mean, I think I'd say that no one in our generation is really, most of the people in our generation are, are really thinking about this on this level, consent on this level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is fairly new. I mean, so we have to start with the, you know, Gen Gen Z, I guess. Um, yeah, you know, just, you know thinking agree. about, you know, the, the relationships I've had, you know, throughout my life, my adult life, and just rethinking, you know, how those played out. And, you know, how, you know, even in my case, doing things I wasn't necessarily comfortable with. I didn't, it wasn't a lack of consent, but, you know. Yeah, exactly. I think we need to normalize this conversation. Um and yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's it's a little bit like the lack of conversations that people have about what's not necessarily emotional abuse, but is like unhealthy aspects of relationships or heterosexual relationships. You don't hear a lot of um, kind of non-idealistic portrayals of this stuff unless people have, you know, split up or are getting divorced or you don't hear the kind of normalization of 
trying to make relationships healthy. And I think similarly, we don't really hear a lot at this stage yet about, well, how can we make sex as healthy as possible, ethically speaking, and having those conversations in a way that goes well beyond the, how can we try to educate people about avoiding uh, rape or avoiding being rapists? That alone is just not enough. Yeah, there's an example in your book, which I even had trouble reading because I actually didn't know what should have been done in that case as a woman who, you know, for most of her married life, did not want to have sex with her husband. And, you know, because women are taught to, you know, not hurt people's feelings and to acquiesce, you know, she just did it anyway. Yeah. And, and then I'm thinking about, you know, how she could have communicated that and, you know, kept her relationship. I, I just don't really know. Those are really complex problems. Yeah, no, I mean, it was an incredibly hard story to read. And, It's interesting, too, that it was anonymous, which I completely understand. But even after divorcing her husband, this woman felt, I think it was for 15 years, like she was just endlessly going through with sex that she didn't want. And in that case, like there was something that was pretty coercive about it, or at least maybe I shouldn't say coercive, super insensitive about it, um, because their arrangement was that they didn't kiss and that she could read a book while he had sex with her. Right. Um, which is, you know, a pretty clear sign that your partner isn't really interested. I mean, I think we need to tackle the sense of entitlement to sex within marriage and be really clear about the fact that, you know, just because people are married does not mean that entitlement is there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That's a really good example of entitlements in a marriage if your wife is reading a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it kind of goes without saying, right? You're entitled to this thing, even if she is so, you know, actively not participating. So clearly and actively not participating. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, imagine if she'd been able to say freely, I'm just not interested in this right now or under these circumstances. And, you know, then he could make his choices about what he wanted. But if that were an acceptable thing to say, which, you know, it, there is there are all sorts of reasons why someone might need to say that and feel that within a relationship, you know, physical changes, hormonal changes, uh, having children, um, you know, illness, uh, disability of kinds that might affect, you know, someone's desire. It, it's a pretty extraordinary thing to sign up for a life with someone and just expect that they will be sexually invariable throughout the entire relationship, I think. In, in closing, I just want to talk about how you end this book and you talk about, or the first book actually, Down Girl, you ended it with kind of a feeling of despair, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And definitely. I remember that very well because I remember we were talking about this offline about our very first interview because I interviewed you for Down Girl when that first came out. And I remember and you can tell me if you don't want to mention this or not, but I remember on on the phone call I could hear the despair in your voice. Oh, yeah. And I was, yeah. I was so taken aback because, you know, I'd interviewed a few people at that point. And people typically talk about these things in a really academic way. Mm-hmm. And they remove the emotionality from it. And I was so moved by the fact that you were so close to the content and to what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of took me aback because I'd never heard that. And I, and I was just wondering, it's like, is everyone else kind of holding in their emotions? And, you know, uh. 
So anyway, yeah. that's just a comment. <laughs> oh, no, I love the comment. And I really appreciate you saying that. And I should say, too, you were one of the very first people who was interested in Down Girl. And, you know, that meant and means still so much to me that, that you know, we were able to engage in that way and have that wonderful conversation. I think it was almost like one of the very first conversations, if not the first, that I had about the book. Um, so thank you for that and for your amazing work generally. Um, you know, I tend to think of it as, as well as holding in the emotions, it maybe has something to do with, or at least it can have to do with a sort of feminine coded pseudo obligation to give hope to, there's something about feminist work that um, there's a sense it shouldn't be too grim and you shouldn't get too close to it and you shouldn't be too despairing or too negative about what's actually going on around us and you should offer people this this you know gift of hope at the end and so I kind of I had this terrible time writing the end of my first book because I I both felt the obligations of the genre very strongly to have something more hopeful or more quote-unquote constructive to offer by way of an ending Um, but at the time I just didn't have that in me like it wasn't there was no content there that I could offer and in a in a way, it felt like a kind of um, a valuable form of political resistance to give free reign to what I was actually thinking and feeling after writing that that book, which was this is really bad and really hard to change. And you want to know what will change it? So do I. It's really hard. Um, it we shouldn't conclude too quickly that things will get better maybe we just have to keep fighting for what progress we have made to not be rolled back and that's a devastating thing to think and feel and say but it was also the um yeah it was what I kind of had to say at the time so how have your feelings changed with this book because you know we've both had big life changes we both have daughters who were born just a few weeks apart yeah. How has that changed your feelings around this topic and around misogyny? I mean, I in a way it hasn't changed them so much as it shifted the emphasis. Um, it's not that I feel any more hopeful. I think I do feel more of a political commitment to fight in a way that I was too tired to, to feel as much as I do now. Um, at the end of my first book, I just felt despair and I, I said... I give up. Um, and I, I meant it in a way, um, you know, not forever, but for now. And then, you know, I wrote most of the second book while I was pregnant with my daughter and I felt this sense of horror at what I was cataloging in terms of the injustices that are so prevalent in the world she'll face. Um, you know, even though as I write in the last chapter, they'll be tempered by, by many forms of privilege um, you know, the world is still grossly unfair to women, even comparatively privileged women, as as I believe she'll be. Um, and so what kind of emerged from that was a sense of, like, grim political commitment to keep fighting, no matter what the outcome is. So I in no way feel like the outcome is going to be good or that I know what the future holds and that I don't feel like we're making much progress. Um, but I do feel, and this is maybe a slightly brighter note to end on, I do feel like 
there is a really robust political resistance to misogyny that is strong and growing in strength. And I feel that more than I felt in, you know, mid-2017 um, when I finished the first book or published the first book, you know, there was kind of signs of, of something brewing in the Women's March and resistance to Trump. But I feel like those, that kind of grassroots feminist resistance, as well as anti-racist resistance to Trump in this country, among, you know, many, many other social ills, I feel that that's brewing and growing. And so that's something I kind of hang on to and want um, and indeed demand of myself to be a part of. Yeah. So do I. So do I. Yeah. Well, Kate Mann, thank you so much for joining me again today. Thank you for giving us another gift of your, your mind and your thinking and another book to read and to read over and over and over again. Oh, thank you. So just, just thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for your work and your voice and this podcast. So thank you so much for having me back on. And it's a real pleasure to get to converse again. 